gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Please come to the dispatch.com to sign up to become a member of the community. It's that it's the it's the time to do nice things. So it would be nice if you could do that. And if you can't do that because you've got uh, financial or other considerations going on, there's still plenty of free stuff for you to check out and hopefully get addicted, as as they say in the uh uh, narcotics world first taste is free okay so uh uh i've been struggling to get the, our next guest on here for a very long time it's been arduous many many oxen have been sacrificed to ball um and uh uh we finally figured it out and as as listeners know uh i've been sort of increasingly obsessed with the issue of urban politics and the role and why Republicans are and conservatives are making an incredibly stupid and, and inhumane mistake by not focusing more attention on that stuff. And there's a slew of guests that I've wanted to have on to talk about various aspects of this. And I thought that the, the, the perfect first one will be an occasional series about urban America is uh, my old friend, former colleague, and current president of the Manhattan Institute, though he's only speaking for himself and not that august institution, uh, Ryan Salam. Ryan, welcome back to The Remnant. Thank you very much for having me, sir. It's a great honor to be here. Um, and we should say that you are speaking in some cavernous auditorium uh, <laughs> and... Uh, the audience out there is wrapped with attention, but that's why there's an echoey sound to it. It's not. It's, an, it's not your. It's speakers. an audience consisting entirely uh, of robots uh, and a toy train set and uh, other wonders uh, that are typically enjoyed by my toddlers, and they are listening with rapt attention as well they should be. Otherwise, I will take out their batteries and and cruelly punish them. Take out the batteries from the kids, the robots, or or all the both. Same? Both. My kids are cyborgs. Little known fact, but uh, please let's keep that between ourselves. Well, it, it, cyborgness <laughs> does run in the family. I hate <laughs> to tell you this. Um, uh, for listeners who don't know, uh, uh, Ryan is is one of these polymathic uh, data sponges type people. There have been rumors for a very long time that he's maybe not full cyborg, but at least cybernetic, and um, which is. Why he makes some people uncomfortable because of the uncanny valley problem. Um, and he can also be a very fast talker. But I'm delighted. I, I didn't realize you had progeny. So I'm, I'm delighted about that. Congratulations. Yes. Honestly, uh, it's really awkward to talk about because basically cloning is still frowned upon in the Western mm -hmm, world. Mm -hmm. But the truth is that uh, just with eyebrows like mine, you know, you just have no choice because you're not certain with traditional reproduction. So it just mm -hmm. had to go straight to cloning. Yeah, I, I can see that. So, for again, this is an audio-only thing, but um, uh, <laughs> Raihan is uh, of, of of South Asian extraction, um, but he is basically a Telesovalis head, um, but a Neanderthal's eyebrows, although better <laughs> better groomed. And so, anyway, the best of both um, worlds, exactly. Yes, that's right. Okay, so let's get started. Um, I want to talk to you about a bunch of different stuff um, for those who want to. Uh, one an, an eggheady inducement to stay in, stay around till the end. Uh, Raihan and his one-time co-author and former blogging partner Ross Douthit, um wrote a book that 
Sam's Club's Republicans, or is that that was the that was the name of the article that the book became? That's right. Yep, that was an article in the Weekly Standard, and the book was called Grand New Party. That's and a Grand I, New Party. I'm sorry, I just brain published. On that. No, 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 no. It, I, it was published in 2008, which feels like uh, many lifetimes ago. But yep, right. So if you were doing this new Vogue for a turning the GOP into a new workers' party or a multi-ethnic workers' party. If one were doing the intellectual history of that 20 years from now, you might start actually with that weekly standard or with that, that weekly standard article or that book um, as sort of the, the uh, prelogue uh, or prelude to um, the debate that we're having today. But we're going to do that later in the thing. I, guess I, I promised I was going to talk to you about urban stuff and I want to talk to you about urban stuff. So you are the president of the Manhattan Institute, which is uh, one of the... Uh, easily one of the most uh, elite state-based think tanks, but probably the premier urban issues, urban-centric uh, think tank in the country. And uh, um, so let's just do a level setting. What is the state of urban policy in America, broadly speaking? You can run with it any way you want. One reason, um, we certainly were headquartered in New York City. We care deeply about the city and its future. We do think of ourselves as a national think tank, partly because uh, urban America, the problems facing urban America are national in scope, and they have a disproportionately large influence on the political economy of the country as a whole, its cultural and intellectual direction. And when you're looking at the state of our cities right now, uh, the truth is that you're seeing a very... Uh, variegated landscape. You're seeing some cities that through the COVID crisis have really thrived, and you're seeing some particularly prominent examples. New York City is foremost among them, which have basically had an exceptionally good run for about 30 plus years. They've had an exceptionally good run for a lot of reasons. Your audience understands very well that we could talk about at greater length, but basically those things that were the source of strength for some of these productive um, superstar cities you know, generally pretty dense, places that became intense concentrations of college-educated, graduate school-educated talent, and also places that have been magnets for a lot of immigrants, both working class and, you know, highly educated, highly skilled. Um, that formula of bringing these different constituencies together, uh, basically melding them together into this very powerful economic machine has just been hit incredibly hard by this crisis. Um, you know, a couple months ago, uh, Raj Chetty and his team were just basically surveying the country as a whole, looking at the pace of economic activity in different communities. And what they found is that the economic uh, activity was really, uh, really declined most in affluent zip codes. But it wasn't affluent people residing in those affluent zip codes who were hard hit. It was that whole universe of working class people in service sector jobs in those places. And again, that's the whole formula here. The whole formula here is that, you know, why uh, would you as an affluent professional live in these incredibly expensive places where, you know, frankly, the quality of government, which we can get into, is not always the highest, quite the opposite a lot of the time. You're there both because you want to be around other professionals, you want to learn from other professionals, but you're also there because of the wealth of services, of in-person services that are available to you. So in a way, the presence of those scrappy people who are on those lower rungs of the economic ladder trying to climb up, their presence there is part of what makes uh, living in these cities so attractive. 
And it's exactly those people who are hit when affluent people say, okay, you know, I'm putting the brakes. I am not going to consume in the same ways, both because I'm legally forbidden from consuming right. in a lot of the same ways, but also, hey, it's a lot of uncertainty. And also I don't need to spend in this way. And that has been really, really tough to see. And it's also raising some deep questions about the viability going forward of the model of these cities. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I hear, well, let's just stay on the COVID stuff since you brought it up. Uh, the, you know, there's a lot of chatter that New York is never going to come back. It's never going to recover. Um, and I got to say that, like, were it not for the fact that Bill de Blasio were mayor, um, I wouldn't give a lot of that stuff credence. <laughs> but, I, you know, he's the kind of guy who you could see just leaning all the way in a uh, bad decision tree post-COVID. Um, and I assume he's representative of a lot of the political culture in general. But um, if these trends about people wanting to live in urban places are real, you ha I, w I would have to think long-term New York does come back. And in fact, you could see some argument that COVID is kind of like what Katrina was for New Orleans, a disruptor that as terrible as it was and as, as many tragic stories as there were, it broke a lot of bad cycles. And you could actually see, you know, rents be down for a little while, which would attract new people. I mean, if you had to bet, um, or if you had to give a, a, a prediction, do you actually, wh where do you think New York is vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, in, in, forget vis-a-vis, -vis, where do you think New York is in five years from now? Um, so I believe that the fiscal challenges are real. They were here long before the COVID crisis. I believe the deep political dysfunction, uh, I think that that is pretty persistent. Um, so I believe that the city is going to recover, but I also believe that there are a lot of larger trends that were pre-COVID that were going to come to a head one way or another. And the big picture is that basically because of the urban renaissance, because of about 30 years of extraordinary success, people basically came to take for granted the idea that New York City and other cities like it were luxury goods, to use a, a term that uh, former Mayor Michael Bloomberg had introduced. And uh, this idea that because of that, people were always going to be willing to pay a premium to live in these places. And I just believe that there is a path to success here, but the mm -hmm. path to success here is becoming more competitive and recognizing that some of the particular pathologies of these cities are luxuries that we can no longer afford. Uh, when you're looking at the obscene cost overruns, you know, essentially, um, it's almost as though you have a kind of monopoly, you have this premium product. And so you're able to get obscenely inefficient. And there are people who attach themselves like barnacles to the workings of the city. And basically, you suffer through it. You do it because you feel as though you have no choice, because this is the huge agglomeration of talent, you've basically got to be here. And basically, those forces are weakening. I'm not saying it's zero to one. I'm not saying it's binary, but they are weakening at the margin. And what that means is that you have to have a real change in political culture. So if you ask me point blank, I'm a lifer. You know, I'm a mm -hmm. native of New York. I've lived in Brooklyn, you know, most of my life. Uh, and I love the city. I'm here to stay and fight. But uh, there's no guarantee that things are going to be looking great in five years. There is absolutely a path to that. There are strategies we can pursue. There are enormous strengths we can build on. Just one little thing I'll mention too, 
is that when you're looking at the city's renaissance, you know, lots of stories you could tell about effective policing, which I think is a huge part of it, um, and also just in some ways meaningful improvements in governance. But a huge part of it is just immigrants. Mm-hmm. A huge part of it is that when you're looking at 1980, uh, there were about 5.4 million people living in New York City who were born in the United States. Right now, it's about 5.3 million. So it's actually gone down. The population of the city as a whole went up from 7 million to 8.3 million. So, you know, there you go. Simple math. It is immigrants uh, who accounted for that huge rise. But in the 2010s, the stock of the foreign-born population just barely went up. It was Mm -hmm. actually in those previous decades when it really surged. That's something that really transformed neighborhoods in the outer boroughs. It transformed the public safety landscape. So that has, you know, COVID has affected that now in the short term, but there's just a bigger picture, longer term, kind of decade long story here, which is that New York City is a tough place if you're a native born working class person. Uh, And frankly, you can get a different standard of living in, in other places. The city has been attractive for working class folks born in other countries. And if that changes, if you see some meaningful change in inflows overall, or also the relative attractiveness of New York versus other major cities, other communities, that's something we don't talk about a lot. We talk about wealthy people as well we should, you know, who are the people who are the foundations of civic life in New York. And that's a big deal. But it's also about these working class people deciding where it is they're going to um, establish a foundation for their families, where they're going to start businesses and much else. Um, yeah, so you brought up immigrants. And, and um, this is a point that uh, our mutual friend Yuval's made a couple times to me, which is, I, I think, a really important one that I think about a lot is that you know historically cities are where immigrants go um, to discover the American dream, right? I mean, it's like that is where the dynamism. You can, you you know, I, I would be given the overall decline of Americans in agriculture. Now it's like one or two percent of Americans are agricultural workers in one way or another. Um, uh, which is not to denigrate that field because that's sort of like the hamster that spins the wheel of a much larger food service, all that kind of stuff. But, um, the, you know, the, the immigrants, most of the immigrants who came here for the last hundred years did not become farmers. They all went to cities. They were sort of the lifeblood of these places. They were the drivers of dynamism and, and mobility and whatnot. And one of the things I've noticed over my lifetime is places like, like New York city, it is very difficult if you're a poor or even middle income or lower middle income immigrant to live anywhere near where the really good jobs are, right? I mean, it's, and which is this, which is makes one of the most unsexy topics in public policy, which I know is near and dear to your heart, which is not casting any assumptions about your personality or your overall sex appeal. <laughs> um, uh, but I remember you waxing poetic about the glories of Houston years ago because of its zoning policies. Um, but, you know, the point is that like, like, and I've made this point a zillion times on this podcast, in Europe, the poor neighborhoods are the suburbs and the, the rich parts are the, the middle inner cities. And when I was a kid, I never understood that because I, having grown up in New York City in the 1970s, inner city was synonymous with the bad parts and the suburbs were the nice parts. And it turns out once you get rid of crime and do a couple other things, uh, people want to live in cities and they start gentrifying those kinds of neighborhoods really quickly. I'm 
generally pro-gentrification in most respects, but it does chase out hardworking people who need low rents. And um, so anyway, uh, what are some just obvious low-hanging fruit things that you think or would love to see New York or San Francisco or Chicago um, or any of these cities who seem to be suffering from this sort of urban sclerosis issue um, do to sort of fix that supply chain of innovation and, and, and dynamic workers and, and all that. You've been alluding to this, but uh, it's, you know, land use regulation is a huge part of it. And it's not just a huge part of it for these superstar cities that had, at least pre-COVID, been very attractive to skilled workers. Uh, it's also huge for cities that are sh- shrinking, potentially. Because one way to think about it is that actually, you know, these cities are all linked together, right? I mean, you know, if you're thinking about it as a national labor market, and when you're thinking about one of the problems facing the country, it's that so much of our built environment is frozen in amber. Uh, You have this very log lag time. So, you know, to us, it's natural to think, yeah, you know, you build a house, you want it to be pretty durable, right? But if you're looking at a number of other countries, and, you know, Japan is the classic example of this. Actually, Japan builds a ton. And one of the reasons Japan builds a ton is that, you know, their buildings are, in a sense, a little bit more disposable. They approach Mm -hmm. their buildings the way that we might approach our cars. It's just a very different mindset, partly because you have more accommodative regulation. So, you know, why would that matter? So just to approach it backwards, why would it matter for a city that's hit hard times, that has faced some serious structural challenges that might want to shrink? Well, if you're literally banning mobile homes, if you're banning manufactured housing, if you're banning the kind of housing that you could at relatively low cost repurpose, where you don't necessarily have to sink a ton of money into it in the first place, you don't have to get through tons of regulatory approvals and what have you, that city, you know, that capital can move more easily from one place to another. And it's similar when you're thinking about a city like New York, you know, we don't know what the shock is going to look like. Uh, You know, I'm optimistic. I believe the city is going to come roaring back. But also, you know, you can't guarantee that. And even if that's the case, even if you believe, as I do, that the city is going to thrive and recover, that San Francisco has the potential to thrive and recover, guess what? You establish certain regulations when you were treating uh, economic growth like it was the clap, like it was something that you want to get rid of, right? Mm -hmm. Hopefully that it's something you want to get rid of. Uh, (laughs) And then later in an era when, oh, guess what? We have to fight and scrap for it. We actually have to compete with other places that are offering a high quality of life, right? Then it could be that the businesses you have are going to be different or also the families you have. You know, one way to think about Detroit, a city that at its peak had about, you know, 2 million people and today has, you know, under 700,000 people. One way to think about Detroit is that that city really mushroomed in the age of the single family home. It was an incredible place you know, for those kind of blue collar, single breadwinner families. So you build houses that fit that model. But do those houses, does that built environment, has that successfully adapted to a world in which families look different or in which whether, you know, I like it or not, uh, people get married later in life, they have kids later in life, if at all. So, you know, part of the problem is that you have this albatross around your neck of housing that, you know, was a perfect fit for the moment when it was actually built. And mm-hmm. when you're thinking about the revival of New York City, one funny way to look at it is that when you have abandoned houses, we call that blight. 
when you have a multifamily apartment building that was, you know, built you know, in the kind of pre-rigid zoning era, well, you, you know, you could have a couple of vacant apartments in there and still have some life there. You don't have the mm-hmm. same kind of blight necessarily, and it can also fill back up under the right circumstances. So a big part of this is, do you have cities? Do you have a built environment? Do you have a regulatory environment that is actually built to adapt and change in the same way that families and communities and individuals change over the course of the life course. Uh, and I think that that is just something that people need to think about because the whole thing is that we've been in this, this fantasy land where it's like, oh, the way things are right now, that's the way it's always going to be. Gentrification is somehow going to be this terrible plague. It's going to be this horrible, awful thing that middle class, upper middle class people want to move into these neighborhoods. And then, you know, pretty soon you're going to say that's psychotic, yet we're still hamstrung by these regulations that reflect that moment in time, number one. And number two, you know, the political coalitions that are just so rigid that change much more slowly because, by the way, the same people, they leave. Or the mm-hmm. same people, they just don't vote. They don't participate. They just completely kind of put their, uh, they just shut off their ears to the craziness. And that's a big part of this kind of inertial problem. Um, yeah, it's an interesting point about this, this lag time thing, because often if you wait until the problem becomes obvious, it's too late to do the best things to have prevented the problem from coming up in the first place. And that's why I want to talk to you about hair loss and keeps. Okay. So, you know, uh, one of the things, you know, I get this ad copy from these advertisers and one of the things they really like is for people to sort of talk personally about, um, the product and, you know, with some products, particularly meat products, I can often uh, wax poetic about my personal relationship with it. Um, but with this product, Keeps, I don't use it. And if you saw the um, latest episode of the Dispatch Live, you know I don't use it because um, I have the kind of hair that uh, you would associate with one of those hippies putting flowers in the um, in the barrels of rifles of the National Guardsmen in the 1960s. Um, and, uh, but I actually do have a relationship with the concerns about losing your hair. My dad was bald. Uh, I used to have, when I was a kid, I had hair that was thick like Stalin's and then it started to, uh, get thin. I thought I was going to go bald and I had a huge, huge panic about it because, you know, unlike Ryan, who's got this, uh, perfect little dome of a head and he looks like he shaved his head on purpose. And for all I know he does, um, I have this giant misshapen gourd of a head, and if I lost my hair, um, it would be a problem, and uh, the village women would hide their small children behind them when they saw me coming down the fairway. Two out of the three guys will experience some form of male pattern baldness by the time they're 35. The best way to prevent hair loss is to do something about it while you still have hair left. You used to have to go to the doctor's office for your hair loss prescription. Now, thanks to Keeps, you can visit a doctor online and get a hair loss medication delivered right to your home. They make it easy and deliver your medication every three months so you can say goodbye to pharmacy checkout lines and awkward doctor visits. Remember, prevention is key. Keeps treatments typically take between four to six months to see results, so it's important to act fast. The sooner you start using Keeps, the more hair you'll save. Find out why Keeps has more five-star reviews than any of its competitors and more than 100,000 men trust Keeps for their hair loss prevention medication. Keeps treatments start at just $10 a month. Plus, for a limited time, 
you can get your first month free. So if you're ready to take action and prevent hair loss, go to keeps.com slash dingo to receive your first month of treatment for free. That's K-E-E-P-S dot com slash dingo, D-I-N-G-O. We thank Keeps for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. So uh, one of the things that I, 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 a big picture, let me make it a big picture point and I'll use a specific example. Virtually everything that liberals, stereotype liberals, right, MSNBC liberals, uh, almost everything that they care about in terms of economics, not in terms of culture, but in terms of economics, um, is stuff that is actually happening. These are the problems of urban America, right? Uh, poverty, homelessness, uh, e- economic inequality, which I think is the biggest one, uh, to a lesser extent, uh, not to a lesser extent how much they care, but I mean, uh, uh, police misconduct, right? These are not problems per se that you so- that liberals would associate with red America. Um, as much the stereotypes of red America, you know, um, these are problems that they see every single day. The weird thing is that the cultural problems that they care about are sit they are, are stuff they never see in their own communities. I mean, they like they don't care about like Bible thumping preachers on in their community and you know in in Park Slope, Brooklyn. They care about it because they see something on TV about it a thousand miles away, um, and which is a weird paradox. And, and there's sort of a flip side to this, which is that virtually all of the problems that red America, stereotypical red America, sees, um, very few of them are in front of their front doorstep. I mean, the rural America level of immigrant penetration is very low. And it's funny, the more anti-immigrant a community is, is often highly correlated with the lower, with lower levels of actual immigrants being present in their communities. And... Um, and the stuff that bothers them culturally is stuff that isn't in their communities, but they see a thousand miles away. And so the, it's a very strange paradox we've got in our politics. And, um, and the thing that I sort of focus on about this urban stuff is that there's so much low-hanging fruit for Republicans or conservatives to actually expand their, their electoral coalition. If you believe the rhetoric like, like I do, like you do, about the importance of bourgeois values, about the importance of the, 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 the small businessman who wants to be a big businessman, uh, the unfairness of, of, of regulations that stifle growth and stifle entrepreneurship, big businesses, they can afford the right lawyers and the right lobbyists to get out from underneath friggin' you know, bad regulations. But the local butcher shop or the local, you know, uh, garment factory kind of thing in a city, the local, uh, printing company, those kinds of regulations that screw with their zoning or what they can do on their premises can destroy them in a heartbeat. And Republican politicians pay no attention to that at the national level. Um, and, uh, and meanwhile, liberals seem to think that all of the problems that they think are associated with American economics are perpetuated by somebody other than liberals. I mean, Manhattan, I mean, New York City, San Francisco, Chicago, these are places that are totally dominated by monopoly, monopoly liberal Democrats. And, um, and yet they constantly talk about their problems being foisted on them by Republicans. Well, you know, San Francisco's homeless problem 
is not the result of Republican policies in a state that is dominated at every level by Democrats. Um, first of all, am I missing something in the schema? And second of all, what is it? How how would you get the camel's nose under the tent other than running a urban issues think tank in the in the middle of a major city to actually get conservatives to pay more attention to urban stuff and Democrats to start actually or liberals start actually realizing that a lot of their problems are created by their own policies and not the policies of some boogeyman that hasn't run their states or their cities for decades. So you've identified, and I hate to flatter you, Jonah, you know how much I hate to flatter you, (laughs) but, (laughs) but you've, you've put your, uh, you put your finger on the pulse. There is this deeper core issue, which is the nationalization of our politics, the nationalization of our politics in pretty much every domain. Uh, so what this means is that if you're running for city council in a major American city, you're not necessarily running on the basis of things you can actually do. You are running to join the farm team. You're running join the farm team so that you can eventually get involved in national politics. And you're going to talk about the issues that, you know, the kind of people who write you checks or the kind of people who are kind of who actually show up for primaries in an off cycle election. Uh, you know, the, the kind of people who are door knockers. You talk about the issues that they care about that they talk about. And the issues that they care about and talk about are the things that they see on MSNBC, or you could say, you know, any of the other cable networks. Uh, And that is actually a pretty serious problem. Uh, So when you're thinking in terms of national issues, you could think, well, you know, on this or that national issue, here's how I vote. I have simple heuristics. I have simple proxies. You know, I prefer lower taxes to higher taxes. Or, you know, I have this view on social issues rather than that issue on social issues. But it turns out that the things that state and local governments do, they're actually pretty important. And they're actually not exactly the same as what happens at the federal level. So, you know, you could say, look, you know, you and I might disagree about, um, you know, how much federal debt you're comfortable with by the time we get to 2030 or 2040. But guess what? State governments, at least in theory, have to balance their books. Similarly, if you're talking about municipal governments, they operate under certain constraints. There are domains where they can actually make a meaningful difference and others where they can't. But it turns out that when you're looking at partisan political competition in those communities, it's not actually happening on the basis of those things that those local governments actually control. Now, this is a little bit better when you're talking about governors. It's a little bit better when you're talking about mayors, maybe, depending on where you are, because those figures are a little bit more visible, right? Because they're a bit more visible, you can have your own brand, at least over time. If you're talking about dog catcher, if you're talking about, you know, your alderman, your city council member, uh, you know, basically people are voting purely on the basis of partisanship. And even when you have nonpartisan elections, it's kind of similar to the dynamic in primaries in these places with monopoly politics, as you describe it. So basically, if I'm a quote unquote low information voter, which is essentially almost everyone, including a ton of educated people who are zealous and passionate about politics, what you wind up doing is you just wind up saying, you know, okay, well, I recognize that person's name. And as far as I can tell, that person has not murdered anyone this week. That person did not literally steal my pets uh, in the middle of the night. Uh, so, okay, I'll vote for that person. Uh, or it could be, well, huh, you know, that person's uh, last name is also Salam. 
Therefore, I will vote for her rather than this other person. I mean, it's incredibly obscenely arbitrary because you have so little information to go on when you don't have partisanship to go on. And as we've discussed, partisanship is actually not all that reliable a guide because, you know, a guy like Kevin Falconer, the former mayor of San Diego, you know, the kind of issues that he's fixated on, uh, the beliefs that he has are not exactly the same as those of D.C. Republicans, let's say, or Republicans from, you know, kind of a rural area, you know however you want to characterize it. So there's this huge informational disconnect between that level of government and the national level, but it's the national level that dominates everything. And it's actually even worse than that in a way, uh, because you've noticed a trend in recent years. Who are the people who are taken seriously as presidential contenders? They're senators. They're not governors, which is kind of funny because, you know, when you and I were growing up, the assumption is a governor actually runs something, right? Mm -hmm. You actually get some credit for actually running something. But in this kind of media-saturated, national media-saturated environment, you know, it's this thing, well, what do I have to say about separations at the border? What do I have to say about the little sisters of the poor? What do I have to say about this kind of issue that gets the blood pumping for the act blue or the win red Mm -hmm. crowd, that kind of mass upper middle class? where you know, its psychoses are basically dominating politics at every level. The other little thing I'll mention, um, you know, this is a little more parochial, but in New York City in 89, in 93, those mayoral elections saw almost 2 million people voting in the general election. Now, part of that was just kind of the city felt like it was teetering on the, on the you know, brink yeah. of chaos. And it wasn't an entirely good thing, right, that people were so fired up. But it was a huge turnout. And if you look, you know, at uh, 2017, when, you know, as with Dinkins in 1993, you had a mayor who was not universally recognized as a wild success. But in that election, you had almost half the number of voters. And this is in the city yeah. with a larger population. That's interesting. Something happened there. And there are a number of things that happened we could talk about, but it's just amazing that level of disengagement contrasted with the incredible engagement that you saw in 2018 and 2020 with the same population. So I think there are a lot of things going on here, but the nationalization of our politics where city council members in New York City care more about railing against kind of red state, you know, kind of culture war stuff than they actually do about the things they actually have power over. There's something deeply broken about that. No, I agree. And it's, and it's this great frustration of mine. In, in part, also, I mean, just for Republican hypocrisy, Republicans are the ones who talk about federalism, how important federalism is and how localism and, and you know, sending power back to the states and their communities. And yet the places that would benefit the most from that um, they're just writing off because they're, you know, they're, they're fancy city folks or whatever. It's also where most of the voters are. And then like the, the, the long-term political strategy of writing off cities or metropolitan areas is just so mind-bogglingly stupid to me as a political matter. But, you know, I don't know if you know this, but, you know, my brother, before he died, he, he ran for city council in New York. And uh, my brother had all sorts of issues, but he was a very smart guy and he was a real keen observer of things. And he'd been a cab driver and a fish truck driver, and a, he ran a wrecker on the BQE, which was pretty impressive. And um, uh, and trying to do the because allegedly elections are free, right? They're like they're subsidized in in uh, uh, in New York City municipal politics. But it turns out that it was one of these classic fake. Uh, it was basically subsidizing incumbency. 
because the paperwork and the institutional game playing that a, a sitting member of the city council has to, the amount of paperwork you have to do to qualify for publicly funded campaigning was basically a barrier to entry from any non-incumbent to get in. Absolutely. And, and then you'll, I started looking it up because I just sort of became really interested in this. There are all these really, you know, interesting from liberal or mainstream social scientists and political scientists about, you know, in many ways, the worst forms of quote unquote voter suppression, which is supposedly this obsession of, of, of liberal Democrats are in major urban areas. But because if you hold primary, which is the only thing that matters in a place like New York, right? Um, particularly if there's not a big top of the ticket person running, um, uh, turnout, they deliberately make it so that turnout is very, very low. They don't advertise when these things are going to happen. And um, in a, a primary election where only 5% of the electorate shows up, well, then the teachers unions and the municipal unions and AFSCME and all those kinds of people, they're majority makers. They have disproportionately disproportionate electoral clout because their members will show up and they can basically decide who they want it's an incumbent protection racket for clients of these, these public sector unions. And it's the only thing I've ever encountered where it makes me second guess my general aversion to mandatory voting. Because if you had, if you required everybody in New York or everybody in San Francisco to show up and vote, th th those vested interests, those sort of new class, uh, you know, sclerotic carbuncles on the public sector, their share of the electoral pie shrinks from something like 45% to something like 4.5%. And the small business owners, the plumbers, all, the, the normal people, if they all got to vote and they were moderately informed about what the issues were, um, it would change how schools are run. It would change how zoning is done. It would change all sorts of mass transit things um, and make it more in the interests of the actual people who live in the city rather than the people who run the city. Um, and... I don't see any hope of that happening. I mean, I don't want mandatory voting, but I mean, I, is there, is the only way that you sort of fix this is to sort of do an urban Democrat version of the DLC where it's a movement from within the existing party and say, hey, look, we've got to be grownups about this. We've got to respect our tax base. Look at how Dallas is stealing all of our businesses. Um, we got to be competitive. Yeah, we care about the little guy, but and we care about the uh, poverty and all these things, but let's grow up. I mean, this homeless thing is shutting down businesses. This is not a pleasant place to live anymore. Is that the way to do it? It's uh, really tricky because basically um, when you're looking at this poll of national partisanship on these elections, it is so powerful that my concern is that even if you literally had mandatory voting, it might still line up uh, with people who are voting their national partisan allegiances. So my gut on this is that you need a range of different reforms to make urban mm -hmm. democracy work, to make it meaningfully competitive. And when I say make it meaningfully competitive, I mean, actually have it reflect the real diversity of opinion. Because, you know, it, there are some reforms that I'm very sympathetic to. And frankly, you know, if you put them in place, it might not necessarily lead to exactly the political outcome that I want. But to your point, part of this just literally about having meaningful competition. Right. And the problem is... Which, by the way, I, just, kinda, I, cause I was there, Giuliani's success back before he went crazy and was actually an American hero, uh, was largely just because he was not part of the machine. And he could 
keep people out of the loop that would ruin a mayor's chance of doing reform because they weren't, he wasn't, it wasn't that he was a Republican. It's just that he was not a part of the Democratic machine. That's one of the secrets of his success back in the day. I'm sorry to interrupt. No, 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 not at all. Not at all. Not at all. I mean, there are many, there are many neat pieces to that. So one thing uh, that's unusual about New York state is that we have fusion voting in which minor political parties can endorse uh, major party candidates. So that was part of Rudy Giuliani's formula. You know, he received the endorsement of the liberal party, but also, you know, Governor Cuomo and his allies have basically uh, stringently limited the access of those minor parties, which were always a big part of politics in New York State and New York City. But now they've placed such an aggressively high bar for what it takes to remain on the ballot that there are only two parties that made it through the threshold this last time, two minor parties, I should say. And uh, it relates to what you're talking about before, just when you're looking at election administration in these communities. You know, what's weird is that these are places where um, the Republican Party has almost no foothold in power, but they do have seats when it comes to election administration. They do have a role to play there, and they're kind of entrenched. So it's almost like there's this duopolistic practice, you know, particularly for the people who are the members of the machines. Um, and so, you know, one thing is that uh, meaningful election reform uh, called ranked choice voting, maybe it's going to be multi-member, you know, any number of different things you could do. Um, that's not necessarily going to next week create the kind of politics that I want to see in these cities, but it's something that actually opens things up a bit. It kind of breaks things out of that kind of inertial dynamic. And uh, I think that that would be a positive. When you're talking about creating some kind of meaningful alternative faction, one of the big barriers is, uh, and this kind of relates to what we were talking about before, about the fact that the electorate, uh, or the people who actually show up to vote, that universe of voters is so much smaller now than it was before. So we were talking before about how you know, New York City, many other major cities, they're much more foreign-born than they were before. And when you're looking at that foreign-born population, you have a couple of slices of that population. You have those who are naturalized citizens, and naturalized citizens tend to vote at somewhat lower rates than native-born citizens. It's a little bit counterintuitive, but it's true. Now, then there's the large number of people who are not naturalized. You know, lots of reasons that could be the case. Then, you, of course, you have unauthorized people. So if you're looking at New York City, one thing that I find fascinating is that let's leave parties out of it. The people who um, identify as progressives, uh, you know, who see themselves as being on the vanguard of the left, their legitimacy in urban politics stems from this idea that they speak for this multiracial working class, this multi-ethnic working class in those kind of forgotten corners of the city. But the thing is that that multi-ethnic working class is not actually taking part in the political life of the city, number one. Number two, I suspect, and this is a little self-serving, so maybe it's wishful thinking on my part, but I think that actually a lot of those people are pretty pragmatic. Mm. Uh, they are not necessarily as hostile to employers some of them are employers, some of them no employers. Um, they feel aligned with their employers because they see what it takes to run one of these businesses that's kind of on a knife edge. They just have a different worldview. Uh, when it comes to public safety issues, you know, not especially ideological. They're in a somewhat different place. I believe this. So the thing is that the constituency that you'd want to be part of a majority politics that would be a reformist politics, a lot of those people are just not even at the table. They're not even participating in the electorate. Then, of course, you've got, you know, people who are, you know, basically, you know, middle class, upper middle class. They care about quality of life issues, perhaps. But again, national partisanship trumps everything else. 
So that's why you had some people in the late 80s, in the early 90s, who were willing to mix it up a little bit. They were willing to kind of vote in a different direction. But you know, when you have national party coalitions that are built around social identity, that are built around culture, then you could say, but Raihan, but what about these kind of, you know, nitty gritty policy issues that are just kind of very straightforward? Well, here, part of the problem is that when you're talking about that population, that middle class and more affluent population, it's kind of a residual population, right? It's the people who are choosing to stick around. So a lot of the other people who are sensitive about quality of life issues, they've already exited the city, right? Or they've kind of exited it metaphorically in the sense of not being engaged in the same way. And they oftentimes just are more ideological. And also the cause and effect relationship between the policies they support that, you know, for example, with land use, they might see it as, I like my neighborhood exactly the way it is. I want it to be exactly this way. They don't actually see, oh, wait, that's connected to all of these other things that are causing very serious economic problems that are helping to entrench poverty, that are creating massive, massive problems for the city. They don't necessarily see that cause and effect relationship. What they care about, and I don't want to be dismissive because you know these are smart, thoughtful people who care about their cities, um, but you know they you could say virtue signaling, right? Which would be the ungenerous way of putting it. But, you know, some of the time it's like, if you don't have kids in the schools, you care about symbolism. You care about being on the right side of some larger moral issues, some larger moral crusade. You're not necessarily, so so that's why you need political elites that are thoughtful, pragmatic, getting things right. And you need to have some kind of brand. You need to have some constituency uh, that is going to say, we're just not, aggressively, ideologically hard left. You can trust us to more or less get things right, to care about jobs and putting jobs first. The particular details, that's not how party politics works necessarily when it comes to mass politics, but that's kind of what you need. And the problem is that uh, you're not necessarily going to get it from that educated middle class. In fact, quite the opposite in a lot of cases. Those are the people who are driving municipal politics off the rails. But then that kind of working class, lower middle class constituency, a lot of that population is foreign born and they're just not at the table. Yeah, no, it's very interesting. I mean, it, 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 it jives with this thing that um, I bring up every now and then about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Um, she definitely is one of these people who claims to speak for that multi-ethnic, you know, uh, lumpen proletariat that wants to be the proletariat that wants to be the avant-garde, whatever. Um, and you know, she beat Crowley, the number four guy in the house leadership, um, uh, in a primary with very low turnout, something like only 12,000 people showed up. So obviously building even a small coalition of interested parties in a electorate of only 12,000 people is not that difficult. And it turns out that like the um that Crowley, even though he supposedly represents this calcified, corrupt, white male, old guard Democrat, not the new wave of the future, multi-ethnic thinking, uh he did fine with Hispanics and blacks and immigrants, is my understanding. Um the he, even even in some precincts, I think he beat. AOC with with the multi-ethnic coalition that is supposedly at the heart of things. She won with very online, very progressive, what I call barista socialist types, you know, um, Bernie bro types 
who were part of the process of gentrification in the communities that she was so proud to be representing. And I, it's not as hard and fast as, as all of that, but it's, it's, it's much less the propaganda that her initial victory was hailed as. And then it was supposed to be this amazing victory in the general election and the general election victory for the Democrat in that district is a foregone conclusion. Um, but it does sort of, it, it raises this real frustration in that because the GOP is not only written off cities, it is written off trying to reach out to people who could speak to those communities um, on their own terms. I mean, the idea that like, look, I, I would love, I mean, I, I care less about the GOP than I used to because of, reasons listeners of this podcast know full well, but um, I would love for um, the GOP to increase its representation with with Blacks and Hispanics, and that's one of the good things about Trump is the migration of some Hispanics into the GOP fold, although that story has been exaggerated. Um, but writing off Asian Americans is just so suicidal because that seems to be the constituency that is just so transparently more gettable for a party that allegedly represents sort of bourgeois middle-class values about striving and entrepreneurship and, and all that kind of stuff. And, but the GOP has for so long sort of doubled down on this messaging of rural America is real America, white America is real America, pickup trucks is, and country music is, our, is, 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 is real American culture, not that city-fied stuff. And I like all that stuff, you know, look, I like middle American values. I like pickup trucks. I, you know, I, I dig all that, but the GOP has just not cultivated any, but any talent that I know of that really knows how to speak to urban America in a non-condescending, you have to move entirely into my tent for you to understand me kind of way. Um, am I wrong about that? Is there? Is there anybody out there that you think Really, I mean, I, I gather some of these new Congress people who won in in twenty twenty. A bunch of them are are women vets or uh, or or non whites, and some are two of those three. That's great. Um, but is there anybody that you see as 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 able to sort of make inroads into those constituencies? Honestly, uh, thinking about the uh, bench of political talent and its ability to woo urban voters, uh, you know, uh, it's hard for me to say. I'd have to give that a little bit more thought. What I will say is that margins matter. And so when you're thinking about Republican prospects nationally, when you're thinking about conservative prospects nationally, it actually matters if you're losing by 70-30 or you're losing by 85-15. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds kind no, of silly, totally right. but you know, people talk about the Electoral College, but guess what? When you're talking about states like Texas and Georgia and Florida that are decently competitive, uh, you know, it actually makes a very, very big difference. Uh, you know, people talk about Miami-Dade County in 2020. Miami-Dade County is a county where you saw a dramatic swing toward the Republican presidential nominee. But uh, also, you know, he still lost in Miami-Dade County. But that enormous swing is a big part of why Donald Trump fared better in 2020 than 2016. Now, you know, we can leave aside uh, Donald Trump's uh, idiosyncrasies. But what you're seeing in New York City as well, there was a big pro-Trump swing in all mm -hmm. of the outer boroughs. And that kind of swing actually matters, particularly if you're talking about a world and, you know, whether or not this is going to persist, we'll see. But a world in which you have basically super majorities 
in favor of Democrats, of, of center-left political candidates in educated, upper-middle-income suburban communities. So one thought is that, okay, you know, therefore uh, you need uh, a GOP that's going to win back those communities, um, you know, one for one. We're going to completely reverse all of those losses. Another possibility is that, okay, you know, that's a new reality. Uh, that's something that's going to be a persistent fact of our politics. Democrats are going to endeavor to hold on to that new constituency, which is important to them for many reasons, not just in terms of votes, but also in terms of energy, resources, fundraising, and what have you. So then actually improving your margins in those urban communities actually matters a lot. Forget about necessarily winning seats in these areas. And of course, you know, winning seats could be the cherry on top. But I think that uh, this is completely essential. Uh, we're in an age of 50-50 kind of hyper-competitive politics. And the idea that you're going to completely ignore these places, and by the way, you know, 85-15 versus 70-30, or getting to, you know, uh, a little bit better than that, right, 65-35, uh, that also is about talent. Because when you're talking about building a political coalition that is going to be able to affect change, uh, it just so happens that cities attract a lot of talented, ambitious people. And there are also a lot of talented, ambitious people in rural areas. But when you're talking about people who are entering institutions, whether they're large corporate institutions, other civic institutions that play a disproportionate role in changing the shape of the country, you're going to want to look to cities. One big dilemma, one big frustration that you've talked about, um, you know, very thoughtfully is that, you know, yes, uh, conservatives can win elections every now and again. But there's this deep discontent, this deep dissatisfaction around the idea that conservatives also seem to lose the culture. In the kind of institutions that dominate, that reproduce, that shape our culture, these are places that I think it's fair to say, maybe it's an understatement to say that conservatives are underrepresented. Not only are they underrepresented, but conservatives, um, you know, conservatism is stigmatized in these spaces. That also is connected to this urban-rural dynamic. So, you know, I'm not pretending that there's going to be a world in which conservatism is going to come to uh, become hegemonic in these major cities. No, but actually having a foothold, having a seat at the table, being part of the conversation, advancing those arguments. And then, by the way, when you do that, you can win. You can win every now and again. And beyond that, also, when you're talking about places where it's kind of politically monolithic, you can shape the policy conversation in a more meaningful way. Uh, you know, you were talking about the difference between partisanship and ideology and beliefs. And look, it's a huge win if there are people who maybe vote as Democrats in national elections. But when it comes to state and local elections, they are engaging with conservative ideas. They're engaging with market-oriented ideas. That is a massive win. And the idea that we are going to uh, dismiss that possibility, that we're not going to speak to people who maybe you know, represent a different team at the national level, is just crazy. So, so all of these things go together. Yeah, no, I, look, I mean, this is something I've been hammering on for a while now, is that the point of the conservative movement taking over the GOP wasn't to make the GOP more conservative. It was to make the GOP more conservative so that it would then make the rest of the country more conservative. It would move the center of gravity rightward. And uh, in other words, conservatizing the GOP was a means to an end, not the end in of itself. And we've a lot of people have lost sight of that. And they think it's just about scoring partisan wins rather than actually improving people's lives because that's embedded in the idea of making the country moving the country rightward. And I think moving the Democratic Party 
10 degrees rightward would improve more people's lives than moving the GOP another one degree rightward, or for that matter, at 100 degrees more rightward, because you're not bringing the rest of the country along with you anymore. And that's one of the things that think tanks like the Manhattan Institute, like AI, by law and also by culture, if Democrats want to hear ideas, we're happy to give them, right? Absolutely. We're in the idea business, not in the party business. And it would be fantastic. I mean, it may cause headaches with certain donors who think that like, you know, conservative ideas are the sole property of the Republican Party and Republican politicians, but that's a very stupid idea. The whole idea of, of good think tanks is to Johnny Appleseed that stuff as far and wide as possible. And if you can start getting Democrats doing pro-growth, you know, free market, entrepreneurial-based policies, great. You know, let's let Republicans whine that, you know, oh, you didn't give us those ideas. You know, and I, I find that the, the, the sort of childishness of the pure team, you know, our team and only our team deserves to win stuff is so short-sighted. This is yeah. absolutely how change happens. You know, when you look at the progressive movement, which I know you're a huge fan of, Jonah, totally. but of the and early I'm very 20th century. It. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, in the early 20th century, you know, it, this was not actually a movement that sought to dominate a single political party. It right. was a set of ideas and sensibilities and networks that became an important part of the policymaking apparatus of both political parties. And actually, when you think about conservatism's triumphs, uh, when you think about some of the uh, movement towards, uh, you know, greater competition toward greater entrepreneurship, greater openness uh, economically and otherwise, uh, a lot of that was driven by dissenting Democrats. If you're looking at the 70s and 80s, uh, you know, people who are embracing the idea that we want to have a healthier balance between the private and public sector and what have you. So I think that, you know, in an age when you're seeing a lot of ideological flux, if you care deeply about competition, if you care deeply about federalism, if you care deeply about markets, uh, you know, you need to speak to all comers and you need to kind of emphasize that these ideas are not partisan. These are ideas that can make, as you were suggesting, you know, meaningful improvements um, in the growth prospects of a wide range of communities, including some communities where they're not chock full of people who engage uh, with our content. But they are people who would profit enormously from engaging with these ideas and taking them on. No, that's right. And they, they would also profit enormously by staying hydrated. And that's why I want to talk about liquid IV. All right. So, you know, it's getting cooler. Um, it's getting cold where I am. People come some, sometimes layer up. They drink more uh, hot beverages, but they don't drink enough water. And uh, particularly if you're working out um, or if you're overworked like I am, uh, it becomes very easy to become uh, dehydrated and you won't even notice it um, some of the time because uh, one of the signs of dehydration is you're overheated or you're perspiring and you may think you're just doing that because you got all those layers on when in reality you are suffering from the scourge of critical thinking, dehydration. And that's why you should try Liquid IV. So I've used Liquid IV. I like Liquid IV. The flavors are great. Uh, They're not creepy or weird. You don't feel like you're drinking some sort of strange product. They're refreshing. One serving of Liquid IV provides the same hydration as drinking two to three bottles of water alone. Three delicious new flavors, sweet and juicy guava, crisp watermelon, and comforting apple pie. I'm a juicy guava guy myself. 
Each serving contains five essential vitamins, more vitamin C than an orange, and as much potassium as a banana. Healthier than sugary sports drinks, no artificial flavors or preservatives, and less sugar than an apple. Made with clean ingredients, non-GMO, vegan, and free of gluten, dairy, and soy. Liquid IV is available nationwide at Walmart in the beverage section, or you can get 25% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use promo code DINGO at checkout. That's 25% off anything you order when you use promo code DINGO at liquidiv.com. Get better hydration today at liquidiv.com, promo code DINGO. We thank Liquid IV for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. Okay, uh, we went long on that stuff because I like this stuff. Um, uh, but I have to ask you, since you are the, um, if there was a, of the last 20 years, let's say, so we can leave out, um, you know, uh, you know the, the founding editors of the public interest or whatnot. Uh, but of the last 20 years or so, if there was a Mount Rushmore of people who've been arguing in a thoughtful and serious way about moving the GOP towards addressing the concerns and the needs of the working class, um, uh, you would be on it. And, um, and so I'm wondering what you think of this uh, movement that we are seeing. I mean, movement, I think, is wrong because I think, I, I don't want to prejudice this, it's a handful of senators and a handful of policy intellectuals and a handful of journalists who are claiming it is a movement. Uh, but this, 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 this shift, let's call it, um, towards this idea that in the wake of Trump's defeat, the GOP now more than ever, it needs to be, and is going to become a multi-ethnic, uh, workers party. What do you make of all that stuff? Well, there are a couple of things going on here. One is that if you're looking at the Republican and Democratic coalitions, and it's important to look at both, by the way, because developments in one coalition inevitably affect the other one, because again, these are coalitions that are looking to win elections. Um, you know, what you're seeing is actually a very, very long-term development, uh, which is that the Republican Party circa 2019, 2020, actually looks a lot more similar to the Republican Party of 1996 than the Democratic Party of 2019-2020 looks like the Democratic Party of 1996. And I find that to be a helpful way to think about this hmm. because, you know, it's natural to think about, oh, there's been so much change and what have you. But part of it is that um, basically non-college educated white voters were an enormous majority of all voters not that long ago. Now they're not a majority, but they're still a really, really big presence. For a very long time, Republicans have been doing steadily better with that constituency. Uh, but you don't see any really dramatic breaks, honestly. It's just something that has been a kind of steady development. That's why Ross and I wrote a book about it you know, a very long time ago. What does that mean? What are the implications of that? How do you cement that, um, that constituency? And then how do you kind of build on it? So you know, number one, the big change has actually been in the Democratic coalition. The short version is that the Republican coalition is a little bit more college educated today than it was in the mid 90s, but the country as a whole has become a fair bit more college educated. Now, if you're looking at the Democratic coalition, it is a lot more college educated. That's one piece of it. And then when you're looking at, um, you know, basically the ethnic mix, the ethnic mix of the country 
and of the electorate has changed quite a bit since Bob Dole ran for president. But that change has been reflected more in the Democratic coalition than in the Republican coalition. The Republican Party has a larger number of folks, um, you know, of Latin American descent uh, than it did in the mid-90s, you know, somewhat more than it did then. But really, the Democratic coalition looks really quite a bit different. Um, You know, Black voters, uh, voters of Latin American origin, Asian American voters are just a a bigger part uh, of the Democratic coalition now than, than was the case back then. And that similarly spills over into um, when you're talking about attitudes about um, ethnic change and a range of other issues on immigration. The basic way to think about this is that Republican views on those issues haven't actually changed that much since the mid-90s. The views of Democratic voters are markedly different now than they were before particularly among college-educated white voters. So you're now at this moment where college-educated white voters in the Democratic Party uh, basically are more likely to embrace um, certain racial justice narratives than voters of color, not a huge fan of that term, but anyway, voters of color within the Democratic coalition. So in a way, this idea that uh, you've seen this kind of dramatic change on the Republican side, it can be a little bit overstated. But of course, if you're kind of in the same place, roughly speaking, and the country as a whole is moving in a different direction, that has implications, right? It has implications for how you're perceived. Um, and it also um, you know, reflects a variety of other dynamics and policy terms. The policy debates we're having right now are just really, really different. Um, A lot of that, I would argue, is because of an aging population, population stagnation writ large. That has just changed the growth environment. That has changed the policy environment. So the things that were really allowing us to cook with gas when it comes to policy reforms that were kind of growth enhancing, there's diminishing marginal returns to some of those things. So, um, you know, in a way, this whole idea that you need a different policy agenda today than you had in the mid-90s, let alone than you had in the late 70s, early 80s. That is clearly true. But again, does that mean that you need to embrace a kind of radically different approach that's more dirigiste? Um, I'm pretty skeptical of that. And certainly I'm skeptical if you're arguing that we need to do that to reach certain political outcomes. And this is certainly not original to me, but when you're looking at that changing Republican coalition, I think it's fair to say that opinion on economic policy issues has not been something where you've seen dramatic change. When you're looking at the difference between Republican voters who earn over $80,000 a year and those who earn under $40,000 a year, there are definitely differences. Uh, Those who are lower income are somewhat more likely to favor higher taxes on households that are upper middle income or richer than that. But it's actually not Uh, anywhere close to support among Democratic voters for those policies, whether they're rich or poor. Democrats are united on these issues. They're in lockstep. In fact, if anything, more affluent Democrats are more progressive when it comes to their views on economic policy issues. But there's not a huge, huge difference. When you're looking at Republican voters, whether they're low income or high income, you do see some differences. But I believe that they can be overstated. They are overstated because, you know, a simple way to think about this, dare I say simplistic way to think about this, is that Democrats represent areas that are intensely unequal. And an argument around redistribution seems to resonate more. Republicans tend to come from places that are not unequal to the same degree. They are much more egalitarian. 
but they're also areas that are more economically stagnant. Mm-hmm. So what you'll see is that Republicans, this is, you know, again, this is all impressionistic, but they seem to care more about economic revitalization of stagnant places. They care more about growth writ large. Now, I'm being impressionistic partly because this is an impressionistic business. It's about narratives. It's about direction. It's not necessarily about this or that discrete tax credit. And by the way, Jonah will laugh because you know that I'm, you know, Mr. Obsessed with those particular Picayune details of policy. But, you know, we have to be honest with ourselves and recognize that it's much more about those broad narratives. And it seems that with this Republican coalition you have right now, actually this kind of cliched, hoary idea of a pro-growth story actually seems to fit. It actually seems pretty meaningful when you're in areas where it's actually not, oh, you know, we we have to fight gentrification. Oh, there's too much growth. There's too much development here. It's much more people who are the more successful people, perhaps, in areas that are stagnant and who care about them, who care about their future direction. They want to get those places moving again. So that, I think, is a, is a basic, broad, good guide for how to think about the policy mix. What exactly that means, what those policies are, we can debate. Yeah, so that's, I mean, that, so that's part of my problem is that I hear a lot of narrative formation among people who I think personally have a straw man view of what the, the old conservative consensus was, right? Uh, the, moment, the moment you can tell me with a straight face that libertarians have been running national policy for the last 30 years, I know, you, you know, it's sort of like the old joke with the bear. This really isn't about hunting, right? I mean, if, if, if you're telling me that you honestly believe the Cato Institute has been in the driver's seat of national policy for the last 30 years, you're pushing a narrative rather than making a serious policy argument. I mean, you, if, it were, if it were to say that we've been too libertarian about this issue or that issue, that's a different argument and there are reasonable people who can disagree. But it seems to me that part of it is a desire, you know, a lot of people made a big bet on Donald Trump. That bet, as of now, does not seem to have paid off as well as some had hoped. And they are now trying to find a consolation prize in claiming that, aha, but see, the coalition he put together is actually supportive of our sort of industrial policy, dirigiste, whatever you want to call it. Uh, um, post-liberal integralist, you know, whatever, ultramontane uh, theocracy, whatever. There are a bunch of different, there are a bunch of different factions in this who all want to sort of use Trump and Trumpism for their own argument's sake. And it's fine. That's what people do in our line of work. But um, I see very little um, from most of these people, there are a few exceptions, about what an actual workers' party looks like. And it often they seem to say that populism and workers' party are the same thing. And that's historically not entirely accurate. Uh, in fact, there's very little public policy substance to the concept of populism. Um, and so rather than talk about what they're not, you know, the lacuna of the one hand clapping that uh, of what they're not providing. Uh, since you wrote a book on this and you actually care about being pro worker and cared about it when it earns you a lot of opprobrium from the people who now say we have to be pro worker. Um, 
In 2020, what are a handful of things that you think are consistent or not consistent? That would be interesting too, but consistent with a generally conservative, classical liberal point of view that would actually benefit the working class um, uh, that either the federal government or local governments could do that we haven't actually covered already? A really big theme is just this idea that we care deeply about work. Uh, We want people to have opportunities to climb the economic ladder and that there are more and less accommodative policies you can pursue. Uh, You know, I I buy that. And, um, you know, I think that there are, uh, it's going to be different depending on circumstance. uh, But I think that that fundamental idea is a sound one. I also think that when you're talking about government intervention, the area where uh, I am somewhat more sympathetic is when you're talking about the context of great power competition and you're talking about the fact that we want to defend a free society to defend a free society we need to have enormous productive capacity we want to be prosperous having a kind of dynamic growing economy really matters also attracting talent matters all those things matter so that could be an area where yeah okay maybe you want some creative policy synthesis and you're going to kind of think about this or that but i just in terms of the kind of broader politics of this um I'll just kind of identify what I see as a bit of a dilemma and the dilemma that was really affecting a lot of conservatives in the pre-Trump period. The dilemma is this. There is basically this very entrenched consensus around the idea of a market economy with some kind of safety net. There's also a big entrenched consensus around the idea that certain aspects of our safety net, certain social insurance programs, particularly Social Security and Medicare, are going to be here to stay. And uh, we're not going to mess with them. Now, I think that that's unfortunate because honestly, I believe that Social Security and Medicare, I believe in a safety net, but I believe that they could be restructured in a way that would make them much stronger, better programs. But the reality is, uh, you know, elected officials are operating in a playing field in which they're here to stay. The huge problem for a lot of conservatives and for a lot of Republicans pre-Trump is that that was the reality Yet the incentives for them in media, uh, in terms of kind of cultivating a constituency, the kind of activist constituency, was to pretend that wasn't the case and to use incredibly aggressive language about the things that we're going to do. So you do that to appeal to the insiders. Then you don't actually do anything at all. Or you have someone like Paul Ryan, you know, thoughtful, deeply admirable person who actually was proposing very incremental, modest changes to the Medicare program. He was proposing much more dramatic sweeping changes to other programs, by the way, to make his math work, but we can get into that. Mm -hmm. But then basically, you're almost, um, you're taking the hit for making this kind of large, sweeping, ultra-ambitious argument that can actually be quite alienating to people who will agree with you that we want to have a growing economy. We want to have uh, room for entrepreneurship. You know what I mean? We want to have meaningful competition. You're taking the hit for that. And then, you know, your political rivals can say, look at this person, this kind of crazy radical who wants to burn everything to the ground. But then actually in policy terms, you're not actually getting anything out of it. You're actually not making real gains. So the kind of milk toasty argument that, you know, kind of... <laughs> that I and kind of you know, other folks were making uh, a while back is that that's a pretty bad trade. If you sound kind of dramatic and radical, yet you're actually not delivering anything at all in terms of a substantive outcome. So what we were saying is that, well, how about we flip that? How about we actually say, look, we recognize that we're going to have 
a market economy and we're going to have the safety net. We want to make it work better. So we're actually going to affect real change uh, in a way that makes you sound less insane. That kind of allows mm-hmm. you to make a case. Now, part of what's happening now is honestly social media. Part of what's happening now is the fact that you have a, this incredible fragmentation. Uh, you have the opportunity to build exciting new enterprises like the dispatch, where you're able to <laughs> speak to a kind of an audience that is passionate that is kind of engaged. Um, you're able to speak now. Again, you're speaking to something that's larger than a niche, and you have a larger project. But you know, you get the broader point. Sure, sure, sure. And what you're seeing happen in our politics is that you know politicians need to get to fifty plus one, right? They need to build some kind of broad, expansive coalition. But when it comes to this kind of media domain, actually having um, you know three percent or a fraction of one percent, but that is you know very passionate and engaged with what you're doing, you can build something that is meaningful for you. And you could advance arguments, you could pick fights if you're someone who loves picking fights. So that's actually this tension, because if you're a public intellectual, the way to do it is by picking the right fights, to do that in a kind of way that is sharp, that is provocative, that's attracting attention, even if the attention is mostly negative, right? But then if you're talking about coalition building, you're talking about a very different kind of enterprise. And then people like us, for a lot of reasons, um, you know, maybe it's generational, maybe it's just our sensibility. You know, we want to build a coalition. We don't want to just kind of fixate on. It, it, you recognize that there's going to have to be a big tent, right? So that demands a certain style of communication. It demands an ability to listen and engage. Um, and so when it comes to kind of specific policies, you know, there are things that I support. There are things that other people in my shop oppose and kind of what have you, you know, kind of, we have a range of different voices on these issues. Uh, But I think a big part of it is the idea that we do not want to be rigid. We were talking about land use before and locking Mm -hmm. in the land use pattern that you saw in 1950s Detroit. We also don't want to do that when it comes to policy. Having kind of big, broad rules that allow ordinary people, whether they're working class or rich, to actually build their life in a way that's more or less predictable. That's why I believe in our system of government and not parliamentary government. Actually, the fact that our system necessitates building these coalitions, not just in the House, but in the Senate, you know, there are huge barriers to this, means that you want to have some kind of uh, broad coalition that can lead to policies that are broadly consistent rather than violent lurches from here Mm -hmm. to there. In a way, you could argue that the kind of supermajority requirements are too stringent right now. We're not allowing for enough change. I kind of buy that. But the fundamental logic of the Madisonian system, I think, is one that allows for civil society to flourish. So, you know, again, if you're going to have something like a policy that is designed to be a pro-worker policy, make sure that it is not rigidly prescriptive. Mm-hmm. Make sure that it's not something that is actually uh, seeing to it that Uh, people who want to start businesses, who want to build businesses, are thinking more about how to game the system than they are about how to actually build something to last. Uh, That would be my kind of broad direction. Yeah, I mean, there's a, a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a broken record on my mantra that complexity is a subsidy, that the more complex you make society, the more you are rewarding the people with the resources that help them navigate complexity. And what you really want are simple rules for a complex society. I'm, I'm a total believer in that. But let me give you a for instance. Um, I think this student debt forgiveness thing is mostly BS. Uh, if you actually dive into the numbers, uh, there's very little crushing debt for college. Most of it is grad school debt. 
and most of it is concentrated in a very small number of people. And when you start thinking it through, the people who have massive student debt are either doctors and lawyers who are going to be able to pay it off over time, um, or they're people who are subsidized by municipal unions and, and government, other government unions like teachers unions and whatnot, where the way you up your salary bracket is by going to get another degree. And uh, whether that's fair or just or good policy, that very small number of people who have massive, you know, student debt, uh, that is just, that's just paying off a constituency of the Democratic Party. It is not fixing a structural problem in this country. But there was this thing I just saw the other day, and I haven't read up on it, where Jill Biden wants to basically make community college free. And I got to say, I'm more sympathetic to that than I would have been 10 years ago. I am, I'm a big fan of community colleges. When, I, when I've spoken at community colleges, I'm sometimes the most impressed with community college kids. Not because they're all geniuses or anything like that. I mean, kids at Yale Political Union are very smart and all that. But the people at community colleges tend to be paying for it themselves. They're working a job. Maybe they made some mistakes or maybe they had to help out in the, with the family and, um, and they had to get a GED or whatever. And now they're trying to make something out of their life so they can be an accountant or a refrigerator repair person or whatever. And because they're paying for each credit out of their own pocket, they tend to not be very interested in courses on uh, lesbian poetry and the antebellum South or, you know, other sort of identity politics BS. They're like, why do I need this? Because I'm paying for it. And our, I mean, you know so much more about this stuff than I do, but one of the sort of cliches of right-wing uh, economic policy talk is to say, oh, we should have better apprentice programs. We should have ways to get people into a trade faster. Why do we have to get, make them all go to college? That's sort of what community colleges do. And I would much rather pay through the nose to help people go through community colleges so long as we're not subsidizing the gender studies shops, right? I mean, that the adverse selection problem becomes real if all of a sudden the thing that makes these people bourgeois is paying for it out of their own pocket. And if you get, take rid of, get rid of that, you might screw, screw things up. But at the very least, the community college stuff is where we get people who are, are trying to improve their lives in real tangible middle-class ways. And forgiving loans for people who got a dumb PhD and a dumb specialty seems immoral to me compared to that. I mean, where do you come down on that kind of stuff? Is there, should we be looking at Germany more, which is not something Goldberg say very often? <laughs> so our shop does a fair bit of work on higher education financing. Uh, you know, we have a scholar, Beth Akers, who's thought very deeply about these issues. And one of the points that she raises is that uh, it's exactly as you put it, uh, when you're looking at the people who have accumulated massive amounts of student loan debt, it's typically graduate debt. You know, and, and by the way, that's not always a wise decision, but it's this very weird line of argument because you know, the whole idea here is that you're making an investment in your future. You're making an investment in your future, and the hope is that this is going to contribute to remunerative employment, or maybe it's about your fulfillment, maybe it's about you, you know, becoming a different kind of person. But again, the reason why the public sector subsidizes this is the notion that there's some kind of positive externality, there's some way in which we benefit from this more broadly. Um, and, you know, that's why I think that the most sympathetic people are people who have student loan debt, who never finish their degrees, 
Mm-hmm. And oftentimes that was from low quality institutions, uh, institutions where people didn't necessarily have a clear sense of what they were getting into, partly because the institution in question does not really have a meaningful incentive to do that. Uh, you know, if you were going to absorb some of the cost, if you were a higher education institution, when someone defaults on their student loan debt, then it might lead you to be much more cautious about what's happening in uh, the front end, you know, when you're actually taking on students, or it might lead you to think, huh, maybe I should invest in more meaningful counseling resources. That's going to change my business model. It might mean that I'm going to be less inclusive, by the way. And that's what people always say. Aha, as soon as you make us remotely responsible for outcomes, then we're not going to be able to admit as many students. Well, you know, maybe that's actually a better, yeah. healthier, more sustainable so trade-off <laughs> in the long run, right? But yeah. also, what, what part of what you're getting at, which I think is just very wise, is the idea that there are people who also maybe want to try things out. They might want to go dip a toe in and see whether or not it's going to be right for them. And there are people in that bucket who now actually do find themselves in a difficult position. And there are policies that we can pursue that make it a little bit easier for you to kind of dip a toe in in a way that's not going to kind of haunt you for the rest of your life and really kind of ravage your economic future. That is a kind of decently sensible policy you could get broad agreement on. Um, You know, and as to the specifics of community colleges, this is a kind of, you know, big, longstanding debate. Should they be there for kind of some kind of career prep? And I, you know, tend to think that's a good, healthy way to go. One problem is that you see a lot of people, um, particularly on the left of center side of things, who are talking about a kind of blanket policy. You know, right now for community colleges, you know, in most parts of the U.S., um, if you are from a household earning the median income or less, uh, it's actually close to free, if not free outright already. Mm-hmm. Um, you're right that there are some people who are more conscientious because they are paying, which is a good and valuable thing. What I'm concerned about is the whole problem in which you have people who come out of higher education. They have not secured employment that's sufficiently remunerative or that actually really requires post-secondary education. And instead of turning against the higher education sector, they're saying, I want to be bailed out. And what incentives does that create for the higher education sector as a whole? So I guess, you know, my whole thing here is that we want to think about the larger ecology. How are you shaping the incentives of those institutions at the front end? And what you're talking about to me sounds right. You know, if you're actually making a meaningful investment, those are institutions we should be celebrating. And the problem is that with a lot of community colleges, basically there's this hierarchy prestige in which the people who were trained at more elite institutions, they wind up teaching at commuter schools. And their value system, the kind of things they fight for internally within those institutions, is not to be a place that's preparing people for careers, but to prepare them for a four-year degree, let's say, and so forth and so on. So there's this kind of isomorphism and mimicry in which you don't have enough institutions that say, this is my niche, this is what I'm going to do, and I'm going to do it well. I'm actually going to be really good at providing that high-quality instruction rather than doing what the elite institutions are trying to do. So I think that it's partly a cultural problem within higher education as well. That's a really interesting point. And I guess I didn't realize about that it's mostly free already because I guess the, the kids I ran into were disproportionately paying for it themselves. They were a little older, they're a little, you know, that kind and of thing. And I don't want to overstate because also it's partly, you know, it could be that you're quite subsidized indirectly, but you're still writing a check, right? So yeah. that's another thing. And that's another also, big if, conversation. If you're working at Olive Garden as a waiter and you're writing a subsidized check, but it's still 70 bucks a credit, that's real money to you, you know? Um, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and, and we're both believers in people having skin in the game and whatnot. But the, but the cultural problem 
maybe because it tickles my shrimpetarian funny bone about the new class stuff, the cultural problem of community colleges where it's not that the students want it to be Yale, but the professors exactly. do, is a really exactly. good one, which I hadn't thought about, but completely jibes with my experience with a lot of community colleges where I visit the, the school and the kids, and I shouldn't say kids because some of them are in their 20s, are just earnest, serious kids, you know, serious people who are, they're not showing up to a debate between me and Peter Beinart uh, because they need to know it for their career prospects. They're showing up because they're interested because they got yes. busy schedules, but it's the professors who want to turn the places into something more because of their own status class anxiety about teaching at a community college. Although I hear from lots of really decent community college teachers. I'm not trying to say it's a problem with everybody. Oh, no, 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 no. I no, suspect absolutely. it's much more of a problem with the humanities types and the poli sci types than like the math people and that kind of thing. But and and, and also know. just look, you know, it's, it's also true that there are a lot of people who just want to learn and, you know, kind of, this is a part of, you know, kind of how can you be an active participant in civic life? And I think that that is a good and worthwhile mission. But I think that when we talk about higher education, we oftentimes conflate a lot of different issues. And it's a point that you raised earlier in the conversation, just, we always want to be more precise you know, when you are talking to people about big ideological abstractions, when you're talking about the workers' party stuff or any number of things, just tell me, be specific. It relates also to, and this is a little bit of a tangent, but the conversation about nationalism. Mm -hmm. You know, when you ask people what they mean by nationalism, you will get many, many different answers. Then they'll talk to you about cohesion. Then they'll talk to you about solidarity. I'm guilty of this, by the way. But then actually press them. What exactly do you mean by that? What exactly is going to be the vehicle through which we actually get to that? And I think that one of the, the reasons you're you know, an incredibly valuable interlocutor and what you're building at the dispatch is so important is because you're actually pressing people to get specific about things. And it's something that conservatives, it doesn't come naturally for us. Uh, because, you know, the, the people, the kind of nerdy people who gravitate conservatism are people who think in terms of abstractions, think in terms of big struggles, uh, think in terms of how do we restore lost virtues. But in a conversation around policy, it is really, really helpful to just be really precise about the objective. Even when you're talking about narratives, just recognize that the way that you and I use language is not the way that someone who might be very sympathetic on 70% of the issues uses language. And that's a way that, you know, whether it's in the urban context or any other, you might lose people who could be meaningful allies to you on some discrete questions like community colleges or, or, or something else that is textured and that has real effects on people's lives. I mean, the, 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 the thing about, I mean, you talk about narratives and why they matter more in politics than they do. And in, 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 there's a mismatch between the narrative stuff and the policy stuff, which I agree with entirely. I think policy is almost a non-issue in national political discourse at this point on and, and at least in many regards um and this idea that somehow the that trump attracted these people because of his pro-worker policies when most of this pro-worker policy most of his pro most of his pro-worker policies to the extent that they were pro-worker were entirely the result of zombie reaganism and the one place or not entirely but almost entirely and the one place where that was actually attractive to a lot of uh sort of working class people was on protectionism, which uh, one could argue didn't actually help those workers that it was aimed at. But it just shows that it was a culture war narrative thing more than a policy thing that that Trump was pushing. Um, but that's, you know, we, that's basically my fundamental problem. I mean, I have lots of problems with the nationalism stuff. But I'm one of these people who think that words matter, that labels matter. And if politics is about competing narratives, 
the second you say nationalism versus patriotism or federalism or liberty or whatever the labels you want to use, you have to ask yourself, what are the cascading sets of permission structure that come from changing the rhetoric in that regard? And if you say, once you say nationalism, okay, well, what flows from that? You know, in, and I think a lot of the policy choices um, of sort of one size fits all stuff flow much more from nationalism than from liberty. Or, and, um, and I think a certain kind of politics flows from nationalism that I dislike more than the kind of that politics that flows from federalism. And, uh, and it doesn't mean that everything in one bucket is bad and everything in the other bucket is good. But at the large conceptual level, these things kind of shape how we think about things and, and, they, and they matter. I mean, that was Irving Kristol's point is that at the end of the day, um, ideas are everything because ideas structure how we see the world and how we view each other and the institutions that we live in. And so I, I'm kind of with Barack Obama on this. Don't tell me they're just words because words actually are really important. So uh, you and I have been on different sides of this question, um, specifically as it pertains to nationalism. You know, I believe that, um, you know, it's a term that has some utility and that there are many different ways to understand it. But I am coming around to this. Um, for many people, nationalism means anti-pluralism. And if that's what it means, then that is certainly a dead end. Uh, so, you know, again, you know, we can kind of litigate, you know, kind of what does it mean to mean that, yada, yada. But just to kind of dig in on something that I see as, as of urgent importance, um, I just really think that when you think about where the rubber meets the road, um, you know, I think that the things that I care about that certainly an overwhelming majority of people on the center right care about, but I also think that a large majority of Americans overall, it's not so much um, pluralism versus anti-pluralism. Rather, it's this idea that we want a society in which there is a broad mainstream. We want a society in which, you know, you can embrace your religious tradition, you can embrace aspects of your ethnic tradition, but you do not feel as though skin color, ethnicity is kind of binding your fate. It's determining the outcomes of your life. And so to me, when I think about the kind of cultural landscape, I see a contrast between a conception of our society as permanently racially divided, permanently ethnically divided. And what we need is a kind of consociational arrangement in which we are doling out resources to people depending on their kind of demographic weight in the population. You know, this kind of very rigid, entrenched mm -hmm. multiculturalism versus a vision of society in which it's pluralistic. A vision of society in which, yes, you know, ethnicity for some is more symbolic than for others. Um, you know, you can embrace certain traditions in your kind of, um, in your civic life, in your voluntary life, but you do not feel bound by them. And I think that the kind of future that I want to see for our country is a future in which that mainstream is broad and inclusive and which you do not have people who feel permanently marginalized and as though they need a kind of solidaristic politics. The way to think about this is... Um, uh, a politics in which you think that, well, Jonah, you do not even treat me as a human being. Therefore, I will vote for a political party that I disagree with on plenty of issues because, uh, you know, you are kind of rejecting me kind of as a person. I don't want to see that. I want to see a kind of the sense. Just for the record, I, wasn't, I was just kidding when I said you were a cyborg. <laughs> I, 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 so I do see you as a human being. But, but this is, you know, just 
it's something that I, I think is just really, really central here. And I think that when you're looking at a lot of people, so, you know, I'm a second generation American, my folks are immigrants. There's a huge population of folks in that post-1965 population. And actually a huge number of them are actually part of that mainstream. I feel like I'm part of that mainstream. You know, I've encountered some racism and bigotry here and there, but it hasn't prevented me from being part of American life. It hasn't prevented me from kind of chasing after my dreams. That's a goal. We want to get there. We want other people who feel marginalized and excluded to be part of that broad mainstream. And so to me, a kind of cultural politics of the right, that's saying that we want that mainstream to expand. We don't want that mainstream to expand by telling you how to live, the kind of person you want to be. We don't want to dictate the way that you kind of celebrate holidays, the way that you worship and what have you. But broadly, we want a society in which we kind of celebrate that idea in which there are no kind of barriers of kind of discrimination that are kind of entrenched to your mm-hmm. kind of achieving your kind of life objectives. And you know, you could call that nationalism, you could call that something else. But I think that it's much more precise to say that, you know, Kamala Harris, Kamala Harris is married to a successful Jewish attorney who grew up in a kind of middle class part of LA. You know, she is of South Asian origin, of Jamaican origin. Um, You know, she is someone who really embraces a certain racial identity, more power to her, but she's part of the mainstream. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? The people who really powered her political rise were a lot of people who didn't necessarily look like her, but who did identify with her, who shared many important things with her. And I think that that's, you know, kind of a neat story. And I think one ironic, terrible problem is that many other people like Kamala Harris, um, instead of telling that story about an expanding mainstream as something we ought to celebrate, actually tell a much darker story. I agree. About uh, ethnic change and about ethnic differences in American life. And I actually think that that negative narrative actually has real effects in the world. So I'm going to, as you can imagine, I'm kind of, you know, writing some stuff about this. Um, And I think that it's a more precise way to talk about things that it, whereas anti-pluralism actually loses you potential friends and allies, I think talking about the expanding mainstream is actually more precise. It gets at what we actually care about. Uh, and it can actually lead to a much broader coalition for not just the political projects we want to pursue, but the cultural projects we want to pursue. All right. So look, we've grown very long. Uh, I agree with all of that. I, the only thing I'll sort of close out on is that uh, if you want to call that nationalism, that's a nationalism that I can subscribe to. But I guarantee, I, I guarantee you, I will bet you that most of the people who are flying under the flag of nationalism I don't, right I don't now, care what you call it, Jonah. Yeah, uh, that's, do not that's believe in thing. any of yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. or, I, I shouldn't say they don't believe in any of that. I, I'm sure a lot of people call themselves nationalists do believe in a lot of that. But if you scratch the surface, a lot of them want to, uh, they want to turn up the share of what that, what that mainstream means is much closer to a 1950s white America conception, which I don't think is an evil America per se. Uh, I mean, taking the, the 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 civil rights stuff out of it for two seconds, but um, uh, then what you're describing and driving that- homogenization through policy is uh, a dangerous idea, <laughs> and it's an idea that um, you know the, the kind of progressives who pursued that project in an earlier right. era that you wrote about so brilliantly. Um, you know, that's not something that in a kind of pluralistic market-oriented society that prizes individual freedom and voluntarism and choice. Uh, so yeah, I mean, any project that is built on state-mandated homogenization of the population, uh, that's not something that either you or I would be comfortable with. And I think that a lot of 
sensible, thoughtful people, you know, on any side of the aisle would agree with that. I agree entirely. Um, but we're going to have to continue this conversation, Ryan. Um, uh, one last very quick question, just because I course. wanted to ask you this. I, I learned something from you a few years ago that I did not know. I mean, I've learned many things from you that I did not know, but um, uh, this one has really stuck with me. On an episode of The Editors, you said that we were living in the, 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 a new golden age of board games. <laughs> um, do you still play a lot of board games? And what board games do you play? Sadly, I do not play as many board games as I the did toddlers back get in those halcyon days. Exactly. Because basically they come in, they sink my battleship. It is, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, it, it's just terrible and tragic. But I will say that there um, is uh, this neat new board game uh, that uh, I literally have been itching to play. So some of your footloose and fancy-free listeners uh, who are just, uh, you know, huddled up in quarantine uh, should give a try to Imperial Struggle. I have, to my shame, uh, actually read the instruction manual, just really kind of just incredibly pumped and excited. But by the time that uh, there's even the remotest possibility of playing, the kids are asleep, uh, basically uh, my wife and I are, are collapsing on the ground yeah. Uh, flop sweats. Uh, so, uh, so, uh, but yeah, I, I urge you guys all to give it a try and tell me about it so you can make me incredibly jealous when you play this kind of really amazing seeming game. Good to know. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> when I was a kid, when I was a kid, when I, when I first had a kid, um, someone said to me, and I can't remember who, but it was the single most succinct summary of what parenthood is like that I, anyone has ever told me. And it is, uh, Simply this, long days, short years. Um, the days are incredibly grueling, particularly when they're little. And then five minutes later, my daughter is applying to colleges. And it's really weird. Oh, Time wow. is a, not a flat circle. It is a roller coaster. Anyway, Raihan Som, thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate it. President of the Manhattan Institute, contributing editor to a thousand and one other things. You can find them all over the place. Um, and, uh, and, and friend, dispatch subscriber and, and dispatch, dispatch subscriber. subscriber. So you're not only are you a powerful man, you are a wise man. So thanks again for coming on. Thank you very much, sir. Okay. I, I, I apologize to nobody for letting the wonkery run wild. We went uh, pretty long with this thing with Raihan and I enjoyed it. I like listening to Raihan. He's euphonious and mellifluous. Um, and, uh, we will have many of his uh, minions from the Manhattan Institute back on in the near future if he unchains them from their desks. Um, and uh, I have nothing else to say. Um, so again, thanks to Raihan for coming on. And uh, please go to the dispatch, thedispatch.com to sign up. To if If your first year subscription is... Uh, winding down, please re-up because you ain't seen nothing yet. Oh, I think you've seen something, but you'll see a lot more in year two. We've got ambitious plans uh, that we're very excited about. And other than that, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Sure.